long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, I was a night crew manager. I had about 50 employees under me. It's a tough job. You have to work overnight. So the, the shift was normally about uh, 7 in the evening until we were done. Sometimes that was uh, 3, sometimes that was 5, sometimes that was 7. So that's a, that's a tough job to do. So when I was there, we just moved buildings uh, from Fort Collins to Loveland. Um, and this was a warehouse where we pulled orders to load trucks so that they could be shipped out in the morning. Um, so we just ch changed buildings. Uh, we had a new computer system. Uh, the hours were terrible. Uh, and the employees really weren't all that happy. Now, in one of our management meetings, um, it had been floated that maybe we could offer paid holidays, maybe time and a half when the guys worked holidays. Um, but the owner of the company had basically said, well, we'll leave it for now, we'll circle back to it. So I didn't think anything of it. Anyway, uh, because my employees weren't particularly happy with the working conditions, uh, my boss decided to have a meeting with me and my 50 employees um, to try and hash out what we could do better, how we could improve conditions and that sort of thing. So we had a fairly productive meeting, although for me it was kind of excruciating, as uh, it, it normally is when employees talk about their managers. Anyway, at the end of the meeting, my boss announced that there was going to be paid holidays, um, time and a half for working holidays, which the employees really appreciated. Well, that made it up to the owner of the company who had not approved this. So at the next management meeting, he announced that he had found out from one of the employees that we had told him that they were gonna get paid holidays and time and a half uh, for working a holiday. And he looked in my direction and said, well, that was a really kind of stupid thing to do when we hadn't actually decided to do it. Well, that was one of those moments where your stomach turns to liquid and wants to leave. And even though I knew I hadn't done anything wrong, um, I, the fact that somebody that important, the company owner thought that I had made this error, uh, made me fear for my job. But I was panicking. I was overreacting because push comes to shove, there were 50 people in that room along with my boss that knew that it wasn't me that had said it. So anyway, after the owner of the company had said that I was stupid to tell the employees they were getting this extra money, um, I waited for my boss to say that he had said it. Silence. He didn't say a thing. So I just hoped and prayed that he would get with the owner and tell him exactly what had really happened. And long story short, that's exactly what he did. But I panicked when I really didn't need to. That's good. Thank you, Simon, for sharing that story. Y'all ever had those moments where you panic and you realize, oh, wait, maybe I didn't need to? Have you ever panicked and taken it out on somebody else? Yeah, right? We do that, right? But one of those like, panicky moments. We all have those experiences, right, where it's just kind of like, oh no, what's going to happen? What do we do? Like Simon was faced with this real like moment of anxiety, right? What does he do? Does he like in the middle of a meeting say, whoa, 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 I didn't say anything. I was him. 
right? Does he do that? Or does he trust that like somebody else in the room has some integrity, right? And will say, but then he doesn't say anything, right? And, and the question, is the boss going to do the right thing? Well, the truth is we all have those like moments in our lives where we feel our feet are put to the fire, right? We're faced with a choice. Right? We're faced with this moment, this choice. What are we going to do? The anxiety, the fear. I love what he said. Your like, stomach turns to liquid. You know, That's a very apt description of a terrible moment, right? And it's just like, oh, no. And sometimes these like, feet to the fire moments we experience are where our values are really put to the test. Right? Will we compromise our values? Will we compromise something we believe in? Will we compromise our ethics? They get put to the test. And we feel that pressure the most when we feel like we're kind of standing against the tide, right, where it just feels like everybody around us is moving in a certain direction, and there's something inside of us that says, no, that can't be healthy, that can't be the best, and we just don't know what to do. Do we violate our values? Do we just kind of go with what everybody's doing? Do we abandon our convictions in the face of that anxiety or that fear? Are we able to make a, what we think is a wise choice? I don't know about you, but one thing I've learned is that wise choices are rarely the easiest ones. Wise choices are rarely the easiest ones. Wisdom is a value of ours here. When we look to Scripture, we look for wisdom. When we think about how do we act towards one another, how do we treat one another, uh, what is it that I should say or do, we're always asking the question, what's the wise thing to do? Because sometimes the question of what does the Bible say to do, that can get us into trouble. You all know, like, how does the Bible say we should punish our children? Don't listen to that one. Don't follow that one. Not wisdom right there, okay? But sometimes it's tough. We're trying to navigate all these things. And we have this great story that we're going to look at today of this moment of anxiety where it's like, what's the wise choice to do? We're going to look at this story of these three young men named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Has anybody ever heard of the story Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I hope some of you have never heard this story because it's a good one. In one sense. In one sense, it's not so good because it's such filled with pie in the sky. Everything works out in the end, right? If you're not familiar with this story, there's a part of me, and I'm just going to be honest with you, that wishes this story didn't end so well, right? And you're laughing because you know life doesn't always end this well. And so before we get to the story itself, I'd like to maybe give you a little bit of history that will help us understand why the story had to end so well. And to get a, a, a true understanding of this story, which is about three young men who had been exiled from their homeland. They were refugees. They'd been taken from probably Jerusalem or the surrounding city. They were probably some of the best and the brightest. In 586, the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem and took away the best and the brightest, and they went to Babylon. And so the story is about, this story is about three young men that were living in Babylon at the time, and they were kind of being groomed to become leaders within the Babylonian empire. Now, to fully understand the story, we have to understand another guy. And this other guy's name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Y'all know Antiochus? Y'all ever met Antiochus? Yeah, anybody ever heard of the name Antiochus? How many of you are super excited for the next five minutes? of just a little bit of history about the Syrian Seleucid Empire, right? Okay, so listen, you, we, we have to get this, though, because if we just jump to the story and we don't understand where the story comes from, we'll misuse it. We'll misuse it. We'll misunderstand it. So to get the story of really all of Daniel 1 through 6, because Daniel chapters 1 through 6 are six stories. Uh, uh, they're like court tales about foreigners excelling and succeeding right, in the midst of when they shouldn't. 
And they're stories of people's faithfulness to God in the middle of a very difficult time, right? So, but Antiochus, let's go to Antiochus. All right, so here's the thing. In this time period between when all the Jewish people were returning from exile, so you had the exile in 586, about two generations later, they start to come back to Jerusalem. So between that moment in time and then when the Roman Empire starts to, the Roman emperors start to come on the scene in like the first and, and late second century, like the land of Judea where the Jews lived, right? It was pretty much like right in the middle of two major empires. You had the Seleucid Empire in Syria in the north, and you had the, the, the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt, right? And they were like stuck right in the middle of these two empires. And for the most part, throughout this period, Judea remained kind of like Switzerland. Like they were just left alone, right? But they were caught in the middle of everything. But, you know, for the most part, they just kind of did their own thing until early in the second century BC, Antiochus comes into power. Antiochus IV Epiphanes. It's a good name. It's free if you're getting ready to have a baby. Go for it. Antiochus, middle name four, Roman numeral, last, you know, second middle name Epiphanes, because I'm sure you'll want to have your own last name, right? So this guy comes into power in Syria, okay? And the Jewish people didn't really fit into his model and his understanding of the way his empire should function. And you know that never goes well for the oppressed people, right? So what Antiochus did was he wanted more of a uniformed kind of imperial colonialism for his people, whereas the Persians, the Babylonians, they were kind of perfectly content for you to have your own religion and have your own faith and do your own thing, as long as you didn't mess with them, as long as it didn't go against what they were saying. They were kind of happy to have kind of cultural diversity. But Antiochus didn't like that, right? So what he would do is he would try and get everybody under his control to look pretty much the same. And this included embracing a very Hellenistic Greek way of thinking and worshiping, including the pantheon of gods especially Zeus. Y'all ever heard of Zeus? Right? Some of you are still worshiping him. I'm trying to help with that. I'm trying to help. I'm just kidding. I'm just joking around. All right? So, but Zeus was a big deal. That's why he took the name Epiphanes, because the word Epiphanes means God manifests. So he actually believed that he was Zeus incarnate. Okay? And this is about 170. Jesus, remember, appears on the scene about year three. So about 175 years later. So he believed he was Zeus incarnate. He wanted everybody to worship Zeus. Everybody had to live this way. Now, lots of the pagan nations around, they had no problems with this. They were like, great, another God, no problem. The more the merrier. We want to keep everybody happy, right? Why not? If there's a God out there I don't know about, let's make sure that one's happy because it'll go well for us. So that was fine. But this didn't go over too well in Judea, right? A highly monotheistic uh, environment. So all of a sudden what you have happening under Antiochus rule is they're becomes this like cultural civil war. I know this is going to be really hard for us to understand, okay? So stick with me. It's so foreign to us to imagine a really like really divided nation, okay? But that's what was happening here. Very hard for us to understand. Um, so you had this nation and this like cultural civil war that was developing. And, and it really happened within like the high priestly families, the ruling class. So in the middle of all this turmoil, we can learn about this stuff in a book called Maccabees. 
Uh, and also there's a guy named Josephus who wrote these Jewish histori- He was a Jewish historian who wrote a couple of massive like works on the history of this time period and the history of the Jews, right? So during this time period, Antiochus came into Jerusalem at one point in time, plundered the Jerusalem temple, took all the sacred items, the sacred vessels, and he used it to finance his campaigns. And, and all these stories have emerged and have been written down that we can find out about, like bribery and military coups and anything that would rival anything on Netflix today right now. Like it was just a, a terrible time. Now, what happens is Antiochus comes back into Jerusalem and he finds the people in this open state of rebellion against him, right? They're in rebellion against one another. There's groups that say, hey, go with the Syrians, and there's groups that say no, right? And so in the midst of this chaos, he finds himself there, and what he does is he takes out his frustration on him. Because what had just happened to uh, Antiochus is he had gone down to Egypt, right? And he had gone down to Egypt with his entire army because he was going to put the Egyptians in their place. Now, the problem is when Antiochus shows up into Egypt, Rome is there. He wasn't expecting Rome to be there. And so he shows up, he's got his whole army, Egypt is there, and all of a sudden Rome is there. And there's a politician from Rome there. And the politician from Rome comes out and meets Antiochus. And he says, here's the deal, brother. If you come into this place and you raise arms against the Egyptians, this is a violation of our treaty and you will have to deal with the entire weight of Rome. Now, Antiochus wasn't expecting this. He's got all of his generals there. He's not the most humble of people. So So he's like, okay, here's what I need. I just need some time. He says, I just need, give me a few days to go think about what I want to do here. And this Roman politician, this is where we get the phrase, uh, draw a line in the sand. This Roman politician walks up to Antiochus and draws a circle in the sand around him. Big old circle. (laughs) And remember, this guy isn't a warrior, right? He's not a, he's he's not a a part of an army. He has no weapons. He just has Rome, right? (laughs) So he draws the circle around him, right? And he looks at Antiochus and he says, let me make sure you understand exactly what I mean. If you take one step out of this circle without committing to not attacking Egypt, that will be a declaration of war against Rome. (laughs) And Antiochus, again, not the most humble guy, has to turn tail, right? And he says, okay, fair enough. And so on his way back to Syria, he's fuming. His ego is completely shattered. And he walks into Jerusalem. And in his world, it's a mess. So what does he do? You ever come home and like be frustrated about a day at work and take it out on the people at home? That's what he does, only he does it in a very, very dramatic way. So he takes control of the situation by coming in, slaying all kinds of innocent people, burning down villages, brutally enforcing his cultural and religious policies, and he says, this is the way it's going to be. And so what emerges from that time forward is this time of intense tribulation from the Seleucid Empire in Jerusalem. And he leaves his generals there who are going around enforcing this program. He outlaws many of the Jewish practices. So circumcision, which was an identifying uh, reality, a huge part of their faith was outlawed. Scriptures were being burned. You weren't able to observe the Sabbath. And violators would be punished by death, right? So he lays down this 
siege of the temple. He creates a new citadel there, sets up his power and authority, leaves his generals to keep enforcing this. And at the height of it, what he does is he goes into the Jewish temple and he removes the, the idea of Yahweh and renames the God of the Jewish temple, Zeus, sets up a statue, and then he starts to force sacrificing of pigs in the temple. Jesus referred to this as the abomination of the desolation, abomination of desolation. It's talked about in Daniel. And it's this moment where he says, you will be like me. And he then leaves because he's got to go finish all his campaigns in the east. He's lost in the west. So now he's going to go and try and conquer more in the west. But he leaves his generals there. And his generals start to go around from like village to village now outside of Jerusalem. And now they're going, forcing people to denounce their faith. They're, they have these programs in place. And this starts to cause a revolt, right? And this is where we get the story of Hanukkah. If you're familiar with the story of Hanukkah and the Maccabees, it's, they're revolting against all of this that's taking place, right? So this is all like happening. And while this is happening, there's two groups that start to emerge, two important groups that are kind of, they're this cultural civil war. So the first group to emerge would be like the Jewish Hellenists. They're the people that are saying, hey, these times, they are a changing. And let's just go with the flow. Times are changing. Let's just go with it. Let's not worry about it. We'll be fine. They're okay with a lot of the reforms. They're like, let's let everybody worship how they want to. And these folks were like the prototypes. They would emerge over 100 years and become the Sadducees that you read about in the New Testament. So if you're familiar with the New Testament and you hear the two groups of Sadducees and Pharisees, the Hellenists became the Sadducees. They were far more prone to work with ruling governments. They were, they were not fundamentalist in any stretch of the word. But then you have this other group that emerges, and they're known in the literature as the Hasidim. And the Hasidim became what we see in the New Testament of the Pharisees, far more fundamentalist. They opposed the reforms of Antiochus. They said, we need to follow the Torah, right? They were completely opposed to the hellization of their faith. They didn't want cultural interactions. And so they're right, kind of the heritage that Jesus and the Pharisees come out of. And this group would risk their lives to maintain their ability to have kind of old-time religion. They risked everything to follow the observances of the Sabbath, the, the laws of the Torah. And they were kind of this underground resistance. They were like an underground railroad. They were, they were fighting to maintain the purity of their religion. And what we know from the literature is about tens of thousands of these Hasidim were martyred during this time period, horribly burned to death. Terrible things happened during this time. And it was during this time that the stories of Daniel chapter 1 through 6, were really written down. It was when these stories were crafted and created and brought to light because they were saying there's something powerful here about our past that can speak to our present. And so the Hasidim were probably the group of people that collected and wrote these stories, and they shared these stories with one another because they were trying to encourage the people in the midst of their persecution that if you are faithful, it's going to be okay. And so for the Hasidim in their moment, they are telling stories from a long time ago. So they're telling stories that took place 300 years earlier. But they're saying it because right now the call, the assignment is to be faithful. 
It's to be faithful. And if you're faithful, you can prosper under foreign rule and still be faithful. You don't have to compromise. This, these are all these stories of people that didn't compromise their values. They remained faithful to God, and they still prospered and did well under foreign rule. So that's the context that this story is handed to us. And that's important to remember because a lot of these people died. But the story gives hope. And the story looks back 300 years, but it's really about the time when Antiochus is going nuts, taking out his aggression. So with that in mind, with you know, a, a little bit of understanding of Antiochus IV Epiphanes and how he was humiliated by Rome and took that humiliation out on Jerusalem and the persecution that's taken place, what wisdom does Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego offer us in Daniel chapter 3? Daniel chapter 3, here's the story. King Nebuchadnezzar had a gold statue made, and this statue was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He'd set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And so the king gave an order to all his officials. You've got to keep in mind, Nebuchadnezzar is the foil. Nebuchadnezzar is being hyperbolized. Nebuchadnezzar is the code word for right, Antiochus. Right? That's the idea here. So he calls all his officials together. Oh, everybody, the princes and the governors, the lieutenant governors, the commissioners, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other officials of the provinces. This phrase is repeated about four times in the story because the writer of the story wants you to get the buffoonery of it all. Everybody who was everybody would come and just listen. So they were all to attend the dedication of this statue which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And when all the officials gathered for the dedication of this statue, they stood in front of it, all the best and the brightest, and then somebody announced, people of all nations, races, and languages, everybody, you will hear the sound, I love this, of the trumpets, followed by the oboes, and then the lyres, and the zithers, and the harps, and then all the other instruments will join in. I mean, this, this again is mentioned three or four times in this story. It's every instrument is mentioned. This is how grand this is. And as soon as the music starts, you're to bow down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And anyone who doesn't bow down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And so, as they began to hear the music sound, the people of all the nations, races, and language, they bowed down and worshiped the gold statue which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So what's being set up here? The crowd always presents opportunities to compromise our convictions. They no matter where you are, whether it's a religious crowd that you're a part of, whether it's the culture that you're a part of, the reality is it is the crowd. It is the all the people's nation. It's, it feels like it's everybody around you. You're the only one. And they're sitting, and I can just imagine them sitting around a campfire just outside of Jerusalem with Antiochus soldiers all around wondering what's going to happen to them. How are they going to survive? And somebody sits down and says, oh, let me tell you about Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen this before. We've seen this before. There's always a crowd. It's, you always feel like it's every people, every nation. And so everybody starts to bow down. But it was then that some of the Babylonians, they took the opportunity to denounce the Jews. They saw this as a chance. And so they go to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, may you, your majesty, live forever. May you be like a god. May you live forever. Your majesty, you issued an order that every person, as soon as they heard the music, was supposed to bow down and worship the gold statue, and that anybody who didn't worship bow down and worship and bow down the gold statue, that they would be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, unfortunately, that you put in charge. Like, you put them in charge, and this is how they show you their thanks. They just openly disobey you. Like, these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're just disobeying your majesty's orders. 
They don't worship your God. They don't bow down to the statue you set up. And at that, the king flew into a rage. See, these folks that would have been telling this story, they would have known all about a king that went into a rage that showed up from a foreign land. And this king flies off into a rage in the story, and he orders the three men to be brought to him. And he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you refuse to worship my God and bow down to the gold statue that I've set up? Say it ain't so. Really? Now then, listen, as soon as you hear the sound of the instruments, and in case you don't know which instruments, it starts with the oboes, and then it goes to the lyres, and then the zithers, and then the harps, and then every other instrument on the planet will be there, and everybody's going to bow down and worship the statue, and if you don't, you will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Do you think there is any God who can save you? Big question. Is there a God that can save you? When you're facing Antiochus' armies, when you've lost relatives, when you're wondering if your religion will survive, is there a God that can save you? But here's the thing. You know why Nebuchadnezzar in the story is so freaked out? Because powerful convictions always threaten powerful systems. When your conviction is more powerful than the system that is oppressing it, that system will try to spit you out. That system will try to silence you. That system will shove you out. Why is the rhetoric so loud? Why is it so hateful? Because convictions are powerful. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a deep conviction. And here's what they said. Your majesty, we will not try to defend ourselves. So the story is telling the people in the time of Antiochus, don't try to defend yourselves. It's not worth it. It says, we're not going to try to defend ourselves. Guilty. And this has got to be one of my, I love that we're starting with this story because this is one of my favorite statements in all of our scripture because it starts with the word if. (laughs) And I grew up in a world that you weren't allowed to have an if in your faith. And I love this story because it allows for doubt. And they said, if the God we serve is able to save us from the blazing furnace and from your power, then he will. And that means a lot to me in my faith that we're allowed to say if. I love that. And I love what they said next. But even if he doesn't, your majesty, be sure that we will not worship your God. We will not bow down to the gold statue that you have set up. I love it because you know what? These boys, they understood the assignment. (laughs) They understood the assignment. And it's the assignment that that the people, that the Hasidim are giving to all of those in Jerusalem that are suffering, that are trying to maintain their loyalty to their religion, to their faith in Yahweh. And that was this, faithfulness to the truth regardless of the consequence. That's the assignment. The assignment isn't to go in and expect everything to go well all the time, but I'm going to hold to my truth, I'm going to hold to my convictions, whatever those consequences are. And so obviously Nebuchadnezzar didn't appreciate this. And whatever temper he had left, he lost it. He loses his temper. He flies off the handle. He faces to them. His face red, anger, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He orders the furnace to be cranked up seven times hotter than usual. He commanded the strongest men in the army to tie up these men. And he says, throw them into the blazing furnace. That's the command. Hold on to that in your head. Throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up fully dressed. Shirts, robes, caps, and everything. And they threw them into the blazing furnace. It says they threw them. It's very strange. But here's the deal. They're getting ready to do it. Now, because the king had given strict orders for the furnace to be extremely hot, the flames burned up the guards who took the men to the furnace. Now, this is what happens. This is so good. 
then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego still tied up. The three guys that were going to throw them in aren't there anymore. They fell into the heart of the blazing fire. <laughs> like, that's a bad trip. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, but here's the point of the story. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have any power. Antiochus doesn't have any real power. It's all a facade. They didn't throw him into the fire. They fell into the fire. Notice that. They weren't thrown. They fell. There's something in the narrator in the story that says, no, it might seem like all the power sits here. It might seem like you're bound up and you're tied up and you can do it. But no, here's the thing. They just fell in. Sometimes I wonder if they hopped in. They're like, Let's see what happens. Right? Nebuchadnezzar had no real power. And so suddenly Nebuchadnezzar leaps up, it says, in total amazement, and he asked his officials, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the blazing furnace? And they answered, yeah, that's what we did, your majesty. Well, then why are there four? Why are there four walking around in the fire? They're not tied up. They show no signs of being hurt. The fourth one looks like an angel. So Nebuchadnezzar went up to the door of the blazing furnace, probably had him turn down the temperature before he got there. <laughs> right. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the supreme God. Boy, his, change, he, his tune changed real fast, right? He's like, come on out. And they come out at once, and this is so great, right? You, you, the writer is so brilliant. It's like, Oh, by the way, all the princes, the governors, the lieutenants, the lieutenant governors, and the other officials of the king, they were all there seeing this happen. They saw that they had not been harmed by the fire. Their hair wasn't singed. Their clothes wasn't burned, and there was no smell of smoke on them. Like, in the end, they win. And so the king said, praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued these men who serve and trust him. They disobeyed my orders and risked their lives rather than bow down and worship any God except their own. So can you hear like the point and the power of this story when the statue of Zeus has just been set up in the temple in Jerusalem and you're being called to abandon your worship? And now the, the king, the ruler is saying, whoa, they disobeyed my orders. And then here's... Then it, gets, it goes a little wonky. I'm not going to lie to you. Nebuchadnezzar in his zeal is like, and now I command that anyone of any nation, race, or language who speaks disrespectfully of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, let them be torn limb from limb and let their house be made a pile of ruins. Right? It's like, whoa, 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 Neb, hold on. But the truth is, Nebuchadnezzar is like, yes! And all the people in Jerusalem are like, yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. Because we hadn't yet been the, had the revelation of Jesus to say, that's not God. That's not God. He says, there's, Nebuchadnezzar says, there's no other God who can rescue like this. And so the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to higher positions in the province of Babylon. So here's the thing. Before anything, you can't miss this. The point of the story is not for us, first of all. The point of the story would be for Jews under Antiochus Epiphanes' persecution and it's this, that God is present and can rescue you. God is present and can rescue you. And it's important to recognize that they are facing a persecution far more intense than we are facing in this room. And they have watched their relatives and their loved ones be burned and martyred and died. But the story produces hope. And so what about us? 
Is this story just too, like, pie in the sky? Is there really anything that we can take to our lives, to, to the, the times and the moments where we feel the anxiety, where we have to make choices based on our convictions, whether they be religious convictions or whether they be any conviction, like just the values of our integrity, our character? Well, here's some questions I think we should ponder. I think questions are powerful, and I think this story gives us some questions to think about in our lives. The first one is this. What are the gold statues in your life? What are the gold statues in our life? What invites you? What invites me? What entices me to abandon this narrow, peacemaking path of Jesus? Because, see, I think there are people all around us that are constantly putting up statues that are saying, everybody needs to do it this way. In my world, as a leader in the Christian community, I feel this intensely, that there's just this way that you're supposed to do church. There's just this way that everybody has to believe. There's just this way that you have to toe this line. And there's these statues. And if you don't, everybody's going to leave. And if you don't, nobody's going to give. And if you don't, you'll have to sell. All these things. And, and you have to at some point say, i got to identify. This is just a golden statue. And in your sector, in your area, wherever you work, wherever you live, Wherever you have your being, you have those gold statues. And as a follower of Jesus, I promise you, there's those moments that come that say, okay, everybody's doing this. This seems all right. But there's a conviction that says, no, the peacemaking path of Jesus is narrow. (laughs) It's very narrow, and it leads to life. And I have to say, okay, is it going to be promotion and power and prestige? right? The great demons of of our lives that produce gold statues everywhere that I make my decisions? Or is it going to be faith and hope and love? See, the gold statues, they call us to compromise these commitments to Jesus of mercy and grace and inclusion and forgiveness and peacemaking. And so what identifying the gold statues means is that I live with an awareness of what is antichrist in this world. I don't look for a antichrist. I really don't. Some people do, that's fine. I'm not, I, we all believe differently about different things. But I look for antichrists. <laughs> what is the anti-peacemaking path of Jesus? What is anti-love, anti-joy, anti-kindness? What's anti-grace? Jesus' announcement of the good news was what? It was to the poor. So what's anti-poor? I want to know that because that's anti-Christ. Right? Jesus said freedom to the captives. So what binds people up? What, cap- what, what produces captives in our world? That's anti-Christ. So I always say, what are the gold statues in my life that it's easy to see they're everywhere, but boy, it's really hard to recognize. I can't, I can't worship that. I can't let that control me. I can't let that guide my decisions. Another question I think it's worth asking is, are you slipping into Nebuchadnezzanity? Now, this one might hurt a little bit, but what happens... Here's what happens. We read the stories of the Bible and we all see ourselves as the heroes. Come on, say amen. Like we all want to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nobody goes for the play. I want to be Nebuchadnezzar. Like nobody wants to do that. We see ourselves and we look through Scripture and we see ourselves as the oppressed one. We see ourselves as the one who's having to make this tough decision. And that's fine and is true at some point. But at some point, we have to honor <laughs> that we are the powerful empire. We have to at least give weight that in our context, Christianity is a very powerful reality. 
that we are living in the empire of the age. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying we have to recognize that. And we have to say, well, what happens if Christianity looks more like the Nebuchadnezzar of the world than Jesus? Like what happens when the call to make disciples, right? So Jesus says, according to Matthew, go make disciples in every nation, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And I'm with you, even to the ends of the earth. What happens when that invitation by Jesus to say, go and identify the ones that the Spirit of God are calling out of this world to live a radical love, to sustain the world, and teach them what that path looks like, when that gets twisted, and now we're part of a faith that coerces, uses violence, and says, everybody has to believe like me. And if we don't, let's rip them limb from limb and may their households fall to ruin. And the truth is, sometimes my Christianity looks like that, where everybody's got to believe this. And unless you're this, then you're out. And it's exclusionary. And we start to look like Nebuchadnezzar. And so I think it's always good for us in these stories, especially when we are the wealthy ones of the world. And that's a wonderful blessing, but it can also become a curse because it can blind us. And we can all of a sudden easily become the oppressor and not even know it. And so it's worth, just, it's worth just asking the question. And the last question I would think we should ask is, are we ready to be the fourth one in the fire? Are we ready to be the fourth one in the fire? I think the call of a peacemaker is to stand in the midst of the flames with those that are being persecuted. I think that's the path of Jesus. And the, the, the Jesus of Scripture says to us, listen, I'm going to go away and I'm going to give you my spirit. And that spirit will comfort and that spirit will be with you as you walk into the fire, as you stand as the fourth one in the flames. And so are we seeing and are we ready? Because that's what it really means to follow Jesus. And I think what's so cool about this story is it says if <laughs> it, comes to a time of deep, it comes to us from a time of deep persecution where God wasn't rescuing the way he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it tells us something really powerful about ourselves and about the world we live in if we'll lean into its wisdom, if we'll understand the assignment of faithfulness to the path of Jesus. What happens is divine peace. So divine peace comes from faithfully following the peacemaking path of Jesus. That's the choice, right? That's the assignment. Will you live faithfully? For the Jews, it was, will you live faithfully to the Torah? In the revelation of Jesus, for those who are following Jesus, will you live faithful to the way of Jesus, not the way of your religion, not the way that you grew up, not the, not the way that Ryan says, but the peacemaking path of Jesus, the old-time religion of love everybody, of radical forgiveness, of love of our enemies, of going the extra mile, like that kind of stuff, like that's the peacemaking path of Jesus. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 4. He says, don't worry about anything, but in all your prayers, ask God for what you need. That's a big word there. And when you start asking for what you need, you'll always have a thankful heart because you have a lot of things you don't need. He says, then God's peace which is far beyond human understanding, will keep your hearts and minds safe. I love this phrase, in union with Christ Jesus, right? When I'm walking that path, when I'm in union with Christ, the mind of Christ. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said it this way. If God, the God whom we serve, is able, then, but if he doesn't, we'll never do it. Why? 
Because peace is not the assumption of a positive outcome. That's not what comes. Peace is not the assumption of a positive outcome. It's an internal state of being that comes from a deeply regarded, fundamental, foundational belief that the path of Jesus is the healthiest and wisest path in life, regardless of evil's intent in this world, regardless of the Antiochus four epiphanies that are out there. I know that the peacemaking path of Jesus, whether it costs me my life, whether it costs me my job, whether it costs me a relationship, the peacemaking path of Jesus is the wisest path. It's the healthiest path to produce wholeness in our world. And that is not at the exclusion of this idea that you don't find the peacemaking path of Jesus in other religions other than Christianity. The peacemaking path of Jesus is not a religion. <laughs> it's not. I don't believe for a second that Christianity is the kingdom of God. It's bigger than that. Christianity is the way in which I relate and understand God, but the peacemaking path of Jesus, of love and grace and forgiveness and wholeness and equity and truth, like all of these things, they can be found in lots of places. That's the path. That's the way that leads to life for everyone. So as we wrap up, what is it God's inviting you into today? What is the Spirit whispering you? Maybe you've never experienced God's peace by following Jesus. And there's just a little whisper like, man, my life feels out of control. I, I'm unmoored. I'm not sure what's guiding and directing me. And there's an invitation from God to say, why don't you try following Jesus? If that's you on your Connect card, you can just check that box. And I'd love to follow up with you and just share a little bit more about what that means to, to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to live a life of grace and forgiveness and love. And I'm going to learn to trust and believe what is true of me, that I am loved, that I am whole, that I am healed, and that I can bring life into this world. Maybe this week God's inviting you to spend time looking at the golden statues around you. Like, what are they? Maybe, <laughs> this is a tough one, maybe God's inviting you as a longtime follower of Jesus to just consider whether your understanding of Christianity at times or in spaces looks more like Nebuchadnezzar than Jesus. So we have a video that we made a few years ago in the pandemic for the, of this song called Another in the Fire. So what I'd like to do is we're going to play this video to enjoy this song. You can sing if you want. You can just let the song wash over you. But I would just encourage you to finish filling out that Connect card, finish filling out your uh, offering, giving envelope. If you're at a table, you can put your Connect card, your offering envelope in the basket. If you're uh, on the sides, the room hosts will pass the baskets along. If you're in the bleachers, you can use the orange kiosk as we head out. But just take a moment to breathe, enjoy this song, and then I'll be back with our blessing for the day to get us out of here to celebrate July 4th. 